We're talking to Eric Cup today. For Eric's from Bridgewater Studios. This is a company that makes and fabricates kind of very unique, one of a kind items for companies. Uh, you could think about like displays in a in a retail store. They make uh, items for events, you know, statues and signage and lights. They make things for museums. You can picture like interactive uh, displays and and. Um, you know, although when you're in a museum or like picture a children's museum where there might be little things that kids can like get their hands on and, and use and experiment with. Uh, this is a this is kind of a, a very unique design fabrication firm making lots of neat things with every imaginable material, including 3D printing, of course, all, all types of metal and steel fabrication and and wood and, and plasters and cements and just all of it. Uh, really fascinating stuff. And Eric's a great guy, and I really appreciate him coming on to tell us more about this world. So without any further ado, here's Eric Cup from Bridgewater Studios. And my first question for you, and I, I know we'll get to more details, but I, would, I definitely would talk about 3D printing, but yep. your your business in general operates in what seems like a, it's simultaneously unique because you're using so many processes and materials, but it's it's also um, in terms of craftsmanship, it seems like almost like the epitome of craftsmanship because all of these different processes and materials are, you're almost having to define the the standards, you know, like a plumber, there's like very strict codes. This is what sure. things should look like. So anyways, maybe you should just give some background to the listeners on what kind of things you guys are making and how craftsmanship like interacts with your business and what you're making. And then of course, we'll talk about the 3D printing side of this soon enough. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, a company, you know, our company is basically we're a, you know, we're a custom manufacturer, a custom fabrication shop. Um, you know, those terms get used um, all over the place. Uh, you know, I, basically, I say that we're we're engineered to order, hmm. um, and the markets that we serve can be, you know, anywhere from a cultural institution like a museum to uh, direct to brand, uh, you know, Nike, uh, you know, uh, Under Armour, you know, any any of those people that want to um, create an experience, and that's really what we do is we cr we create experiences that people in the world interact with, um, whether it's a museum exhibit, uh, a store display, you know, a big sculpture, public art. And, you know, my, my background, actually, I came out of theater. So, you know, I always tell people it's basically mm. scenery for the real world. And, mm. you know, with, within these jobs, there's, uh, you know, different levels of finish. You know, it's all, you know, much as with any project, it's driven by budget, by time, you know, there's this amalgamation of, of um, parameters that get placed on any project and we figure it out for each one. It's, it's unique. And we use, you know, very much all of the, the trade kind of uh, skills, whether it be carpentry, metalwork, electrics, um, and they get integrated into these experience designs to, um, you know, make, make something that people find interesting and enjoy and have them kind of connect with the world and, you know, look at things differently. So it's this really great blend of technology, fabrication and art. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like the ultimate blend of those. Cause like I said, with building codes, it's always black and white. Like this is what right. a, a water heater installation should, <laughs> you know, you have these three things, but for you on a store display, for example, it's a little more 
fuzzy. And it, I guess it's just uh, satisfying the designer and the client. And I guess how you get there, um, you have some flexibility in, in how exactly it's created. Is that is that right? Or do they oh, give yeah, you like pretty, pretty strict, like we want it made out of steel and we want it this and this? Or, or do you kind of solve those problems and then tell them what you're going to do? I mean, that's really, you know, where we add value and where we come in with a customer is to, you know, I mean, act like the, you know, the comparable would be the general contractor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we live in the same world as all of those trades and that we have to, you know, we have structural engineers look at things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we do something that's big and outside, we have to make sure that it's uh, wind loading has been calculated so it doesn't blow over. Mm. Um, and, you know, anything that requires, uh, you know, LED lighting or, you know, mechanics or anything like that, it all, you know, has to meet all the same codes. But um, where it's unique is, is that it's not, um, you know, it's not like, oh, we're going to, you know, run all this pipe and pull wire and all this stuff. It's like, yeah. uh, how, 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 like how, but th- honestly, that's, that's what we love about the, you know, that's what draws us to the projects is that, huh. Um, that problem solving and like figuring it out. And, you know, we don't really make the same thing over and over again. So it really keeps wow. the work fresh and it's exciting. Yeah, no kidding. So maybe you, you mentioned like store displays and actually mm-hmm. this is funny. You, um, you mentioned museums. I was at a aquarium uh, last summer on like a family trip. And since I've been more involved with kind of craftsmanship and building from this side now of making content about it, I was really admiring the displays in a way I had never done before. You know, they had these like little wave machines that kids could like create these little model tsunamis and knock over Legos. And I was looking at all of that and they had like little sensors telling you, you know, how much pressure and all these things that I was, I was really admiring. And it occurred to me who, who built all this? I kind of looked at the museum uh, docents and thought like, we do. <laughs> I, yeah. But so in other words, that, that would be one example of the types of things you guys are doing. Can you get, like rattle off some more specifics of kind of interesting jobs and things that you've created that people maybe would be familiar with conceptually, but never occurred to them, the guys who had to, you know, head, scratch their head and figure it out? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny. Uh, you you basically described one of my kind of static taglines with people is that when you're out in the world and you see something, you're like, I wonder who makes that. It's yeah. usually a com- it's a company like us or us. And, huh. you know, so, um, you know, basically those what you're describing is a water table that you saw at the at the museum. And we call that an, an interactive display. So obviously it's meant to interact with people. Uh-huh. And, you know, they're, they're complicated machines. We did something very similar recently for the Museum of Science and Industry um, for an exhibit all around friction. And you, you say to yourself, like, What's exciting about friction? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, each you know each material, as we all know, has different coefficients of friction, and you know, kind of communicating these um, science concepts and these you know to children and teaching them about them kind of allows them to see how these things manifest themselves in everyday life. Like, oh, you know, like leather is mm. more abrasive than plastic, and so basically, we made a, a, a large tilting table that had different size. Um, like hockey pucks with different materials on them and the table tilted back and forth. And it was basically like a race and you could kind of um, the science associated with it was that you could set the degree of the table and see like which one moved first on the table and kind of, you know, make a hypothesis and, you know, kind of that teaching and uh, 
guided discovery is, is, is like the hallmark of science museums. So, you know, a lot of the things when we get a project like that, the, the ask or the, the concept is like, oh, it's really simple. And then you're tasked with making something that lasts for 30 years that gets touched by, I don't know, a few thousand people a day in a museum by children who are the most destructive force in, na- in, oh. in, in nature, right? It's yeah, wa- br- it's children brutal. than water. <laughs> yeah, they're brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. In fact, that one I mentioned, it's like kids using water. So that that right. machine is toast. I don't know how it's lasted this long. Wow. That's well, really- you know, honestly, and, and a lot of that, you, you know, we follow that same process where it's um, prototyping, you know, engineering, prototyping, testing, and then. Um, you know, you're like, oh, have I made a water table before? Well, I've made a water thing before. So how is that similar? Wow. Um, so, well, that, yeah. And I mean, you know, we we engineer everything in SolidWorks and, you know, high levels of shop drawings. And, you know, it's it's really, you know, all, all of the people that work in machine shops or, or stuff like that. It's it's we use all those processes to develop, you know, very technical exhibits like that. But they're like one offs. Wow! So that's what kind of makes it cool. Did, was that a software that you described that you said that you used? Um, I, I can't remember what you said. Um, you you develop it and uh, was it a software platform? Oh, SolidWorks. Yeah, that's oh, SolidWorks. software. So it's um, you know parametric design software that you know we can and it allows you to rapidly iterate um, and change. You know, make it's the same stuff that they use for you know making automobiles or really oh, complicated okay. assemblies or, or things like that. And, wow. You know, it's part of our digital workflow as a company, which for companies like us, we really embraced when we started the company. Uh, you know, it was very obvious that the way to stay competitive in general is to just be as technology forward as we could be. Yeah. So, um, you know, making complete simulations and, and high level, highly technical um, shop drawings and engineering drawings allows us to you know, it's the same stuff all these other manufacturers do, but they'll take years to develop a product. Right. Um, you know, we do it in a few weeks or a few months or, you know, if we're working wow. for a, a TV show, a few days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. TV shows would be another type of uh, customer who has a need for these things. So I guess in this industry, let's say these people are used to finding a, I, I guess that's why the company's in a studio because it's it's a combination of, it's not quite a shop because you're, you're also creating the, the, I don't know, the more you're concerned about the aesthetics and the the appearance of these things, maybe a little more than a traditional, when I think of fabrication shop, I think of a metalworking, you know, shop building trailer frames, but um, fabrication is the right word because you're creating these things out of nothing. So is it difficult to, number one, um, can you talk about how you find uh, these types of multi-skilled people in your team? Because these, these are not your typical uh, skilled trades. they probably have a little more um, varied skills in each person and number two how, how do you approach like even bidding or ha- having conversations with these big companies like i want something like this i'm guessing sometimes they don't even know exactly what they want maybe and you have to help them get there so this is much different than most trades and how do you how do you cross each of those bridges um fearlessly would be the uh, the short <laughs> answer is, is that yeah. you know but that's part of the the challenge um you know there there are a lot of, we work for a lot of general contractors who are like, oh my God, like, what is this custom? I don't even know how, you know, it doesn't fall into like, I can't have my drywall guy do this. And like the electrician is going to like, be like, what the heck? So, (laughs) you know, they'll be like, how do I find somebody that does that? And, uh, you know, 
when we've, we've have relationships like that, we tend to a lot of word of mouth. Um, you know, everybody, everybody talks to each other and it's like, Oh, right. I got a guy for that. I mean, when I want a plumber, I call my electrician. Hey, do you know <laughs> a plumber? You know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and finding, you know, speaking to finding people, it's, it's actually, uh, it's challenging, but at the same time, the, the work is kind of unique. So people that enjoy this kind of work are, I've found are kind of always kind of looking for their place. Yeah. And, you know, they, they might be in a, I mean, I, we've had people that have worked in cabinet shops, you know, we work with plastic laminate and veneers and, yeah. you know, we CNC cut parts. And, you know, when I, when I advertise what I, or when I look to fill positions, if, if it's a shop person, I usually, um, like you said, it's tough. I usually try to, uh, my ad is typically for uh, a cabinet maker. Okay. And within that position, you know, cabinet making skills is somebody that's used to working in a shop. They're used to um, doing high end work. They're used to uh, figuring, doing installations because we uh -huh. shop fabricate everything. You know, we're, we're like a millwork company on steroids, I guess. That's a really smart way. And they're all cabinet shops are used to like a white glove installation and having a homeowner who's very particular. And yeah. that in some ways is maybe more difficult to teach than the the shop skills is just the mindset of care and and they they would come with that if they've done kitchens before i guess oh yeah absolutely i, I mean it's we avoid working in people's homes as much as possible um yeah. we have done some really high-end home stuff but um it's it's real you know it's just tough work but like yeah. you said when you find people that have that uh methodology to yeah. what, how they approach their craft and then you know ideally you find somebody that like is really good at that, but man, they like would love to learn or they have done metal work or, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the people that we tend to find are people that just like to create and, yes. you know, they tend to tinker some, you know, some people might be more into technology. Um, other people, it's actually one of the really cool thing. Cause we, we get people in and it's this, it's great to see how their skills overlap and complement. And, mm. Um, yeah, it makes the, the, you know, our, our team a really, um, cool group of people because they're all like you know yeah. one of the guys we work for did like dioramas for you know high-end or they might be model shops model oh. shop people or if they worked in a prototyping shop or oh, um, wow. yeah it's kind of all over the place yeah that's neat i i always you know you meet people who have lots of skills and interests but even just someone who knows about what's possible even if they can't do it like someone who's maybe not a welder but they know we could find a fabricator to CNC this and actually aluminum can be welded in this way. Like almost just knowing these things are possible. And I, I compare that to some tradesmen who are so good at their trade and they really don't care about learning or doing the other things. Like they want to touch their tools in their trade. And so there might be two different types of, uh, of people in that regard. And you would be more <laughs> sniffing out the ones who, uh, I don't know about open-minded, but are at least paying attention to the other trades across the room. I tend to classify it as curiosity. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some people that, and I have an appreciation for craft, but believe me, I mean, there's, you know, you, you know, when you're good at something, if that's what you enjoy doing and that's what you want to do, absolutely yeah. do it. But, you know, if you're kind of, you know, me, I, I tend to have a, a low attention span or a short attention span. So, you know, I was yeah. always like, all right, well, cool, let's do this so I can do the next thing. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of kind of, kind of a, a tough, not tough. It's part of your business, but most shops can build out like jigs and systems and processes once and then use them for a long time. But are you kind of like in between jobs, basically like wiping the slate clean more or less? And, and it's a totally different 
thing next time? Or are there some things you build that are more or less routine that, you know, you can, that you've tooled up for once and you can still use? You know, I think the only jig or fixture we use consistently is a square. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. We, we don't manufacture a product. Um, but however, you, you know, again, we're, we're clever about doing things. So and you know, using the, the CNC's, whether it be the, the fiber laser or the CO2 lasers mm. or, um, you know, the routers or whatever, when we make since we're making these custom things, we're always thinking about the the workflow in the shop and making the process as efficient as possible. So we do cut tons of jigs. Um, uh-huh. You know, we will cut things up for drill placement out of cardboard or styrene mm-hmm. or, or plywood, um, you know, and then say like, Hey, so, or we cut all the parts, uh, you know, we, we engineer it to the level and we cut all the parts out of plywood and, you know, it's like, here's all the parts, staple them together. And yeah, you know, so that, that kind of like layout aspect I mean, I, you know, when I started my career, you know, I remember taking a drawing and drawing quarter inch squares on it and then drawing one foot squares on a piece of plywood and cutting it out with a jigsaw. Right. I, I mean, that's mm-hmm. like, you know, enlargement 101. Now we, you know, take a picture of something, throw it in CAD, trace over it, send it to the CNC machine and yeah. like, here you go. That's amazing. Um, I still think of, or I do think of 3d printing as like this new and, uh, I don't know, wild west frontier of craftsmanship. I know it's been around a little while though. So can you talk about how long it's been around, what, how it's been evolving and where it's at now and to what extent you guys are, you know, using those. And I, I'm thinking part in, I know I'm thinking in particular of like uh, the plastic type of 3d mm-hmm. printing where it layers the plastic, but I know there's other types, even CNC could almost be thought of the way it kind of moves and cuts out stuff uh it's, it's certainly a robot but in any case tell us about 3d printing kind of how when that showed up on your radar in this in this world and how you guys are utilizing it now i mean 3, 3d printing in, in sh- some shape has been around for actually a really long time it's just not been accessible you know m- much as with new technology it's insanely expensive um and you know d- difficult for the the common person <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to really you know you don't see it out of a huge in- industrial situation where people spend you know millions of dollars on it where yeah. when, again when we started the company we actually i think our first 3d printer that we bought was probably six months into starting the company because we got a project and and we looked at it and we were like how are we going to do this and you know seven years ago to to me was kind of the beginning of the uh accessibility to the masses for 3d okay. printing. And at that point it was really kind of magical. And, you know, we bought a, an FDM machine, which is um, ones that most people are, are familiar with now where it takes uh, plastic, it heats it in an extruder and it, it lays down, yes. you know, layer after layer after layer and, you know, builds a structure upon that. And, yeah. you know, when we got that thing, we were like, this is crazy, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's a little magic box, you know, you, yeah. you, you know, you come back and, you know, I had a camera on it and you just watched it for a day and, you know, oh my God, I set this to print at four o'clock and I got there in the morning and ta-da, it was there's there. Your piece. Wow. Yeah, there's your piece. And it was actually the, that specific project, we were making a, a replica of a giant spider crab for a traveling museum exhibit. And if you don't know anything about spider crabs, huh. they can be like six feet in diameter. They're insane. Oh. They're enormous. It's basically a, uh, a remnant of a prehistoric, you know. Is that, is that the same as a coconut crab? Like those really like 
blocky ones and maybe that's different i don't know why i'm thinking coconut crab i think I know to be honest i'm i'm not the crab expert (laughs) i I do however know a little bit more about um giant spider crabs since we had to do it well six feet that's blowing my mind i i always i thought the coconut crabs were like a foot or two but six feet is all of a sudden i'm freaking out like are they in Oregon? <laughs> but right, no, so, no, no, no. So this was, and, and actually, you know, to speak to that, this was for an exhibit called uh, Alien Worlds and Androids. So they, you know, the connection there was, you know, this we have this thing on Earth that looks like an alien. It's a crab that's six feet in diameter. If you didn't know it was, you know, if you just saw it, you would be like, oh my god, this is. And so you they know, came are we to you invaded? like, we we want a life size six foot crab. Can you do that? And you're like, uh, sure, yes. How? Let me think about it. And is that was that when the printing came like, absolutely into the shop you know the client calls and says we need this and we go oh yeah no problem you hang the phone up and go how the hell are we going to do this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. but that's you know that's kind of the uh, the challenge and you know what's really we find engaging and you know it was like all right well, you know we can afford a three you know we can these 3d printers aren't hundreds of thousands of dollars anymore you know they're yeah i, I can't remember i think we spent five thousand dollars on the first one which was at the time you know a lot of money to us but yeah I mean, we made all these parts and we put them together and, you know, it was completely accurate and, wow. you know, the, the customer loved it. Wow. You know, so in, in my opinion, you know, the, the 3D printing in particular, you know, that was a big plateau about five or six, seven years ago. You know, it yeah. kind of got to the masses and, you know, it's slowly been going up and up, you know, the SLA machines, which is a stereolithography, which uses a laser to... Um, like the form machines, which uh, uses basically a laser to cure um, resin, which oh. creates like really highly accurate parts with lots of detail. Um, oh. And, you know, I've been kind of wait- waiting around for the past couple of years because it's been a slow kind of climb. And, and I feel like this past year we hit another plateau, um, which we acquired the current industrial machines that we have. And, um the cool thing about those is, is that they're, they're giant for, for us, you know, if you're a jewelry maker or um, a dentist or, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, somebody that's a small manufacturer having uh, a build you know, calling the build volume, which is like maybe a, you know, six by six by eight inches, you know, like is really cool. Yes. But for us where we make full scale objects, having a build volume of two foot by two foot by five feet. Now that's cool. Wow. I didn't realize they could be that big. Huh. And, well, it depends on the technology. You know, yeah. right now there are um, different manufacturers out there that make FDM machines that are that are insanely big. You know, they're the size of, you know, I don't know, your bathroom. I don't know how big yeah. your bathroom is, but, you know, a sizable room, you know. <laughs> and, you know, it can, it can print over time, um, you know, an object that could be several feet, you know, almost life-size to a person. Wow. Um, the challenge with that technology is, is that in order for it to be effective, it lays down rather thick layers and, you know, cause it slices, you know, it takes an object and it slices it into different parts and basically stacks it up. Yes. And from a manufacturing or production standpoint, getting a product that, that kind of layered look, you, you typically, the customer doesn't want that. Right. So, so it requires additional hand finishing, you know, filling, sand, basically body work. Yes. You know, huh, you know, we tend to call it like, oh, we got to do the body work on this thing. <laughs> so you're sanding out all those layers and filling it up with compounds if you can't get in there to smooth it yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, we use Bondo kind of a lot, fiberglass, you know, a huh. whole variety of things depending on it. So huh. 
while while it's great and awesome from a like, hey, wow, there's this thing that appears, you're not done. Yeah. Um, and much as with everything, we all know that materials are expensive, but but labor is is the, the most expensive thing. Yeah. Um, wow. So so let's say you make let's say your machine is two feet, two feet by five feet. Can you make like with that crab multiple parts and then you you design a way for them to fasten together as part of what it prints like little i don't know like dovetails or something like that yeah absolutely i mean so these the the machines that we have now are you know they're actually it's and and that's why we got them is is that they're this sla machine that they're they're actually the layer height that it puts down is four ten thousandths of a millimeter wow it's insane Whoa. So, but in the, the way they do that is they use a, a laser with a mirror. They call it a Galvo laser, and it, it just moves really, really quickly. And the great thing about them is, is that, that that step that I said was always the challenge with FDM machines is that they come off the machine, and you're just like, oh, I'm going to take a piece of 120 grit and just knock off some high spots, and we can <laughs> paint it. Wow! But to answer your question specifically, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the tolerances on these, as I as I mentioned, since they are so tight. Uh-huh. You can, in the design process, you can take and make them snap together, go together. You know, you have to um, allow weep holes for the resin because, you know, you're building this thing from basically the the bottom up. And right. as you build it, you don't want resin to pool in there. It has to. So you have to build in weep holes to allow the resin to come out. Well, huh. you just print the plugs to plug the weep holes as part huh. of the printing process. Okay. And when you take the part off, you just glue those in, you know, yeah. kind of, you know, the same way like you would with a plug in a, a, a wood dowel with a screw right. and a piece yeah. of furniture. Yeah. yeah. And then, then make it go away with sanding and a little touch yep. up or something. Wow. Yeah. We'll use automotive paints, you know, high build primers, um, yeah. stuff like that. So what, what are you guys doing at World of Concrete? And I think the guy at your booth talked about concrete forms and using 3D printing to interface with that. So how does that work? You know, uh, the world of concrete, we, we actually, it was an, it was a, a shot in the dark for me. I, I saw the show and I was like, man, this is such a cool show. You know, they're literally like power plating stuff out in the parking lot and you can. Yeah. They had a batch plant set up in the park, 3d printing. You saw that big yeah. house printer they had set up for people who didn't see that video, but they were, they set up a batch plant and were 3d printing a house. I don't know how far into it they got, but yeah, they really set up some infrastructure for this show. It was cool. I, I mean, so I, I saw the show and we'd actually done a couple projects for some cast concrete companies. And in addition to 3D printing, we also have uh, two, a, a two KUKA robot uh, cell, carving cell. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're the same robots they use on the like auto plant. So we'll use those to carve uh, large blocks of EPS foam. Um, you know, geo, people know it as like geofoam. We'll get a billet that's four feet by four feet by eight, eight feet. So we got introduced, you know, a cast concrete company reached out to us and said, hey, we have this project and we're making all these planners and each part is different because it's they're in four foot sections and they're it's this complicated shape that's becoming a bench. And how do we pattern this? Like we can't like the, the again, the handwork to go into this. So we, we actually worked with them to develop the 3D model that got approved by the architect and then we parted it out in different combinations of positive or negative shapes. If it was a repeatable part, we did a positive shape and they poured rubber on silicone. They poured rubber and they are able to, you know, get 10, 5, 10, 20 draws off of it or whatever they needed. If it was a single part, we actually carved the negative of the shape and they poured right into the concrete. 
I'm sorry, right wow. into the foam. Right Not the they poured foam. the concrete right into the foam. Wow, cool. And then broke the foam off and then hit it with a cut brush on a wire wheel wow. and they were done. Wow, that's neat. So we saw that and we're like, you know, there's, and you know, obviously the, you know, 3D, the, the batch plants with the 3D printers and all that stuff is amazing. But for us, where we saw an opportunity was, uh, you know, architects, custom architectural details. Yeah. We're able to get with our 3D printers uh, and we can print again, positive or negatives so that we could, if you have a, a, a plinth or if you're doing a restoration and you've got this amazing part that you need to recreate, we could... You know, we've gone out and 3D scanned stuff and created a model. And then, yeah. you know, you you basically, you know, high levels of detail. You can pour rubber on it. And, uh, yeah, you could make 10, 15, 20 of them, whatever you want. Wow. That's really neat. I don't know why this is coming to mind. I saw a tweet that last week, somebody saying something silly like, why don't they make gargoyles anymore? And it got me thinking <laughs> about those. And I was thinking like, oh, yeah, somebody probably had to carve all those. That was probably a lot of work. And I was kind of like, well, it makes sense. They don't make them. But now I'm hearing you say this thinking like, hey, Make a form right. and you could pour gargoyles and we could get those going back up. But that, that would be the type of thing that you could make a concrete form for that maybe without 3D printing just wouldn't be possible. I mean, it'd be possible. It's just um, prohibitive because prohibitive, of, I, again, it just always goes back to labor. You know, yeah. when gargoyles are made, you know, you know, basically had the equivalent of no labor cost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, slave labor. Slave labor. And that, that was your, um, those guys doing those were like the previous iteration of a guy like yourself, like some, somebody saying, I want this. And then somebody thinking like, Oh man, how do I create that and get that up there? There was probably some pretty clever engineering and, and multi skilled craftsmen involved with not just creating those, but getting them up there and getting the Masons to install them. There's probably, probably a lot of, lot going on there. Well, it's, you know, that classic overlap between art and artisan. Yeah. And you know, I, I, you know, that stuff was either carved out of limestone, you know, in the the churches, they didn't have cast concrete in those days. They would be like, all right, here's right. your block, a block of limestone. We'll see yeah. you in a year when you're done. Yeah, you know? don't screw it up. That costs <laughs> right. more than your family. So don't break it. <laughs> wow. That's really, that's really neat. So what, this is kind of a vague question, but I still am curious. Craftsmanship and what, what does it kind of mean to you? Because this you're really on that line of art and craft and satisfying, you know, the average person who doesn't think about it being made and you having to keep track of, let's say like the, the more nitty gritty quality, like what's a good weld and our, you know, good materials and just the kind of the basic shop skill type of like best practices. So how do you keep track of like what a good job is when that is a little fuzzier? You know, most people wouldn't know even how to, judge you know if you finish some display and be like hey that was that was really nice or maybe when you have one of your workers doing something you're like hey you could i know nobody else sees this but you know tighten that wiring up a little bit do you have any kind of like an instinct on how you would define good craftsmanship in a multi-discipline like setting like what you're in yeah of course i i mean honestly it, it it's i'm sure it appears to be a lot looser um you know, but, you know, if I go into a room and I see somebody putting up drywall and their screws are evenly spaced because they've been doing it for 20 years, mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same thing. You know, a lot of craftsmanship, in, in my opinion, comes down to awareness and then, um, you know, the, a desire to create something that is an expression of your proficiency in a given um, technique or, or whatever it is. And 
you know, expressing that in a way is reflect. I mean, that's, that's basically our, our art, right. Is, is how we do things, you know? So when you make it where it becomes challenging and, you know, like you said, when it, when you're doing custom things, you know, knowing what is acceptable or what is good is, is really kind of, it kind of comes downward from the client, you know, there, and it's, it is challenging because there are times where we build something where it's like, Hey guys, this is going to be up for like two days because it's for the all-star game and it Mm. needs to look good. But you know, in two days we're taking it down and it's, it's getting recycled and, you know, going to our recycler. So, Mm. um, but, or, and then there's, you know, these levels of finish, you know, it has to be communicated from the client. Um, and back to the client from us as well, too, is, you know, again, I, you speak to a museum exhibit, you know, this thing is ultra super premium. It's going to be there for 30 years. Got I mean, I, I'll go to the Museum of Science and Industry here in Chicago. And one of the things that I love is in the hallway, you can look at exhibits that were there in like the 20s or the 30s. Wow. That are like these really kind of complicated machines. And you're like, oh, my God, this stuff has been here for so long. So that, wow. you know, when you bid a job like that, having that knowledge of like, okay, this is going to have to last for 30 or 50 years. So we need to make sure that we allocate the appropriate labor and resources to achieve the end result yeah. or, you know, Hey, this is for the all-star game. It's going to be up for two days and needs to look good, but it doesn't need to look good for that long. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. One of my, the, one of the subcontractors I hired a few years ago, um, a painter, one of the, my favorite things about this guy, Primo is his name. He could, he was the best painter period bar none, yeah. but he could also, give you like a $500 paint job on a house. If that's what you want to pay for, he was able to kind of dial in his level of detail, which is not easy. It's, you know, being good is a challenge. Can I get his own. number? Cause he sounds yeah. like a guy I'd like to hire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he's in Phoenix, but maybe he'll, maybe he'll travel. <laughs> um, so here's my, maybe one of my last questions on this. You've worked with these big companies and you were just talking about them kind of letting you know their expectations or the situation. I've always wondered if these huge companies, you know, just full of hundreds of employees, if they, mm-hmm. if, and I, this is going to be case by case, but if they appreciate, and if you get the same kind of satisfaction of doing a, a beautiful job for a Nike display, which I think I saw on your website, which, which looked yeah. amazing as you know, when you put in a kitchen for a homeowner, who's just in heaven, can't believe they, you know, their kitchen's done. What's that like with these big companies where there's not maybe like one owner or one person who's everybody it's everybody's just punching a clock kind of it's their job so what's that right. like working for big companies do you ever feel like they are as excited as you know you are when you deliver the product and or is it is it case by case most of the i would say nearly 100% of the time absolutely because you know even though the they are these um, you know, a large corporation, it's it's not as personal as, as dealing with somebody in their home, home where you can actually see how it affects their daily life. For somebody who's in a creative position at a large brand or, or anybody that's create, creating this experience, they're also, you know, we're, we're kindred spirits as client and customer because, or as client and vendor, it be, because they're doing the same thing, but on a supply side, we're kind of the they're supplying us with the work and right. it's really rare that you get uncreative people in a creative job. Mm. Right. You know, it's not like we're dealing with and nothing against accountants because I need accountants, but it's, you know, that's mm-hmm. a different kind of um, skill set. 
you know, yeah. and there's creative accountants. I, ours isn't, but you know, you see a lot of creative accounting out there in the world. You, However, you actually don't want a creative account. If they're no, creative, no. keep, keep shopping. <laughs> no, absolutely. That's like the one thing I don't want. Um, However, so, you know, in our industry, so you, you get that. I mean, you build that relationship with the client and, you know, a big, you know, t- what you normally think of as a faceless company, they have faces. You, mm-hmm. you know, there's a person, there's a project manager, there's a brand executive, there's the marketing manager, there's the manager of the store. I, I guess that would, you know, if we're using the uh, analogy of, of of a homeowner, the store manager for a specific brand who, we're, if we're putting a store display in, they're the homeowner. They, you know, they're the person who has the staff and, you know, you see that, but honestly, you know, much as like any craftsman, we, we appreciate the thanks, but you know, you have to find satisfaction in your own work. There are times where they're rare. There've been, you know, some times where a customer not, might not have the response we wanted, but we're like, I don't really care because this is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Like you, you, you can appreciate it, that it exists, even if they don't fully. And you're right. It's, it's probably the culture. If the, the culture of that company can't appreciate it, then there's something wrong because, you know, like a, a marketing person, like they they probably feel as much, maybe not as much, but some amount of pride in these things that have been created because they were involved also in bringing it to existence. You know, they came to that job, th- that display did not exist. One mm-hmm. year later, because of their work, that display exists, even if that means like finding you and and getting you know getting the job done through you so there there probably is a pretty serious amount of i don't know pride and workmanship even from these you know marketing and the, the people who's oh 100 percent job you know and it's that that partnership that you know typically and you know much as with everything when you find a good partner um, yeah. you're able to create something you kind of feed off of that energy so yeah um, well, that's really neat. All right. Well, last question. What are you working on this upcoming year? Do you got any projects that you're really excited about? Anything you can share and we'll keep track of your, I don't know if you got social media accounts, but we do. Yeah. To, we have, okay, we have good. Instagram and, okay, you know, we, What's you know with, with, with us, a lot of the stuff, unfortunately tends to be in the rear view mirror because, um, we can't steal our, 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 uh, customers thunder, you know, right. so since it's always based, so we have a difficult time oh, often sharing exactly yes. what's going on, but uh, I can say that we're working on a couple really cool projects for the Children's Museum here in Chicago um, around their art studio. We also have some other traveling exhibits for museums. Um, we're consistently doing lots of retail work with brands. Um, you know, coming back from COVID, uh, it was really exciting because we've seen all these opportunities come back and, you know, they're, they're coming back with with a vengeance, I guess, you know, cause yeah. people are starved for interaction and starved for, um, doing anything. Yeah. So, you know, more kind of, um, store displays. There's a lot of, uh, you know, we did some stuff for the Super Bowl that was really cool. Um, yeah, it's, you know, part of, we, we don't have, you know, and it's one of the exciting and also one of the terrifying things is that we don't have years of work lined up. Yeah. Um, but that's, well, that's that's like kind of nature of the business for you guys because people don't know what their budget is for next year depends yeah. on how depends on how this year goes and and so that or they launch a new product and they're like oh yeah. my god we want to do this thing because we invented the new you know we did a lot we did a bunch of work for Samsung when the Fold came out um, mm. you know so it's all about these really kind of you know Lollapalooza will come around here in Chicago I'm sure we'll do some stuff for that 
you know, so, so pick a cultural event, pick a brand that wants to do something to kind of get some exposure or, Mm -hmm. you know, reward their customers. And there's a good chance we'll do something around that. And, and maybe just for the people who are still listening, who are probably the ones who have a reason to be interested. Are you guys doing work all over the country? Can you, do you deliver things, you know, to other States and how, how do people work with you? Even if they're in, you know, Miami and they got an idea, is that, is that just kind of routine? I mean, honestly, the past two years have made that even easier because there were there used to be more travel. But, you know, much as, yeah. you know, doing Zoom and podcasts, it just kind of transitioned that and made that easier because everybody became more comfortable with it. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, we work all across the country. We have we send crews out on installations. You know, yeah. we just did a couple jobs in L.A., um, you know, Las Vegas, you know, all over the place. And, you know, much as with everything, we build everything in the shop. We put it together. If you're installing something, it has to fit through a, you know, a couple of shop, you know, a couple man doors, a big shop door or whatever. It has to fit in a truck, regardless of who builds it, unless they're doing it on site, which is nobody's going to do that unless it's, you know, drywall and steel studs. Right. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's actually collaborating is, is, is really easy. You know, we send a lot of pictures, we send videos, um, you know. Yeah. Get on Zoom calls, have great interactions, and, you know, we'll travel and install something. So. That's how the business works. All right. Well, if someone's listening, they got this idea for their company or their job or whatever, their museum or their their aquarium, then uh, if you, you need something be, weird. That's what we do. You would be <laughs> you would be the person to talk to. If you got an idea, you don't know if it's possible. All these materials. Ele- we didn't mention electronics and hydraulics and all these things, but I'm sure that all shows up Absolutely. right along with right along with lumber and welding and plastics and everything i i really love and admire you guys and this 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 part of craftsmanship is to me it's the essence it's it's taking all available technologies tools resources whether they're ancient you know like Mm -hmm. clay and pottery whether it's brand new and assembling them to make people happy i really love it and we'll link to your uh, website your instagram account and uh and we'll keep in mind that you can't spoil anything. But after the fact, <laughs> I take it, we can see it after the customer has unveiled it. For the There's going to be some stuff on TV you'll see that we'll, we'll post that's been really awesome. But yeah, thanks so much. It's, you know, again, I love what you're doing here as well, too. And I, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to, to talk with you. It's been really fun. All right. It's a pleasure, Eric. Thanks. And we'll do it again someday. Thank you. Thanks. Talk to you later. Yep.